Hey, I'm Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing the mid-season finale of Season 7, Turning Points. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7 and 8, as well as Blood of My Blood, Men in Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 7, Episode 8, Turning Points. Now we get to talk about everybody's favorite episode of season seven so far, 708, the mid-season finale, Turning Points, and OMG, y'all, it was a killer episode. Fantastic on so many levels. All the performances were out of this world. The music was fantastic. The symbolism was fantastic. The stories were fantastic. Everything was fantastic. So... Without further ado, let's just jump right in because we got a lot to tackle today. First up, we got Roger, Bree, and Buck. They had a very small portion of this episode, but I understand why they had to put this information in the midseason finale because according to some things that Rick Rankin has said, 709 is going to be a very heavy Mackenzie story episode. So they had to keep us in touch with what was going on with these guys. While it's not Mackenzie focused, we definitely get that steady reminder of, hey, this is going on in the 20th century. Jemmy is missing. Rob Cameron has kidnapped him. Buck and Roger found his scarf at the stones. It's looking like Rob took Jemmy back through the stones, but why on God's green earth would he do that? It's just very bizarre and out of left field. And in the books, Diana did this on purpose. So she had us looking over here at what Buck was doing and having us be all suspicious about him. But then over back behind us, we've got Rob Cameron doing all kinds of sketchy shit. And he ends up being the real bad guy in this. It's really scary. We're all very fearful for Jimmy and just thank your lucky stars that you're not going to have to wait as long as book readers did for how this all turns out because in the books, Jimmy gets kidnapped at the end of the seventh book and then they had to wait like five years between seven and eight to find out what happened and you know, we're probably only going to have to wait a few months. So what the hell was the motivation behind this? Bree has noticed while Roger and Buck have been gone looking for Jimmy that the musket ball and the letter mentioning the Frenchman's gold is gone. I feel really bad because when Jamie wrote this letter to Bree and Roger, there's no way that he could have known that A, anybody else would lay eyes on these letters. He probably wasn't even sure that Brie and Roger would read the letters. And B, probably Joe Schmo in the 18th century wouldn't have known what the heck Jamie was talking about. But when you get somebody like Rob, who is an enthusiastic amateur historian, born and raised in Scotland, he knows what 
is being alluded to with the property of an Italian gentleman and all of this. He put the pieces together just like Brian Roger did in the third episode. And so poor Jamie, I mean, if he had known what was about to transpire, obviously he never would have put that in the letter. I can only imagine what he's going to put himself through if and when he ever finds out that this took place. And what the hell is up with Bree just having these diamonds laying around in case they potentially need them to go back through the stones for some reason? Was she planning on going through the stones again? Did she miss her parents that much that it was kind of in her head that potentially they could go back someday? Or was it a just in case? I really want to know what goes through her mind because she told Rodder, she's like, well, I just had them just in case we would need them someday. What the hell would you need them for, Brie? <laughs> like, that's what I want to know. It's very interesting how all of this kind of comes to light. You've got all these moving pieces that have been going on disguised or going on behind the scenes, and then it all blows up. And we are suddenly forced to face the reality that Jimmy's missing. The McKenzie family that's been functioning so well throughout this season so far is getting ripped to shreds. Roger's decision to go after Jimmy, I mean, did he really have a choice? I don't think he had one, honestly. Did it surprise me that Mandy and Bree stayed behind? Yeah, a little bit. I think that if we had been absolutely certain that my child had gone back in time with a complete stranger, that's kind of crazy. I probably would have been going with Roger. But then again, you're running the risk of that child not being in the 18th century and potentially being somewhere here in the 20th century. And if you all go back in time, he's left alone. So I get them covering their bases in that way as well. I just can't imagine how difficult of a decision that would have been. I'm glad that Buck was there because Roger didn't have to go by himself. Knowing that Roger and Jemmy are his direct descendants gives Buck a level of accountability. Like he feels responsible for these individuals. Knowing that Buck was going with Roger made it a lot easier for Bree to stay behind. I loved that final look that Bree and Buck shared at the Stones. It was very brief, blink and you miss it, but he looks at her and kind of winks and nods and she nods back at him like, I'll take care of Roger and we'll find your boy, I promise. That was a huge decision for Buck to make, honestly, because him and Roger just had this conversation in the last episode about the date of his death on the McKenzie family tree. The family tree lists Buck as dying in 1778, which is the year that he initially came through the stones into the 20th century. That means one of two things, that 1778 being there. It either means that he never went back through the stones or he did go back through the stones and something happened to him there and he died. Buck is facing his own death in a way by going back with Roger to look for Jimmy because he knows that it's no longer the option of, oh, well, he just chose not to go back to his own time. He's going back to his own time knowing that he's going to die at some point along the way within the next calendar year, which is just so crazy. But he does it anyway because he feels the need to protect, defend, and be there for moral support for Roger and Jemmy and Bree and Mandy. This is his family now, just as much as his own children. So how could you not love Buck? Honestly, he's fantastic. 
And again, I know I talked about it last week, but the complete 180 that Diana does with this character is just phenomenal. That you can take somebody that literally almost killed one of your favorite characters and then end up loving them so much three books later is just absolutely crazy. Brian Rogers' goodbye was obviously horrendous, and we're getting major Jamie and Claire separating at the end of season two vibes. Brie was so strong. She didn't really have a choice. Much like Roger didn't have a choice in going back to look for Jimmy, Brianna didn't have a choice but to be strong in the face of that decision by Roger because she knows she has to stay. She can't go with him. So she just nods at him and says, go. Because she knows if he hangs around any longer, she's going to lose her last nerve. She's not going to be able to watch him walk away. She loses it as it is after he walks through the stones. Let alone like if he had stayed a minute longer and poor little Mandy just looks so distraught when she says, bye, daddy. (laughs) That's so sad. (laughs) I feel so bad about this entire situation. I hate that this perfect little family is ripped apart. And of course, you know, when things are going good, it's for a reason because it's not going to go good forever. It's Outlander. Let's face it. The whole Max storyline was definitely ramping up this episode so that it could kind of fall off a cliff in 709, I have a feeling. 709 is Richard's favorite episode of the season, so I'm very excited to see what that brings, but that also tells me that it's going to be a very heavy Roger story as well. So now that we've talked about the McKenzie's and cleared the air there, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a new duo. We're going to talk about Denny and Rachel. I've mentioned before that I really like Denny and Rachel because we don't very often get the sibling connection in Outlander. Bree's an only child. Jamie and Jenny have that connection, but they're not together very often in the story. Claire's an only child. Roger's an only child. So it's really good to see this relationship, this different type of bond between characters. And I think that Joey and Izzy nail it. It's very easy to have an antagonistic sibling relationship, but having a sibling relationship where they get each other very well and understand and care for one another. Denny and Rachel have a very unique relationship in the fact that both of their parents are gone. Denny is all Rachel has and vice versa. Denny kind of raised Rachel, especially in the books. Denny's quite a bit older than Rachel. So in this scene that we get with Denny and Rachel sitting in the clearing area outside of camp, Rachel's really struggling with her feelings that she has for Ian. And she asks Denny to pray for her. That was a very powerful, moving moment for me because Rachel must really be in a pickle, right? If she's asking her brother to pray for her. And Denny knows what it's about. He's not stupid. I mean, at this point in the story, it's been a year since the beginning of season seven. Rachel and Ian have known each other and this whole flirtation slash falling in love with each other has taken course over six to nine months, probably. It's been a long road to hoe. And Denny has watched this happen pretty helplessly, honestly. I think everybody has. I don't think that Ian and Rachel even had a choice in it because they know the implications of this. Rachel is likely looking at giving up her faith and her community. The Quakers are not going to accept her marrying a Mohawk. Mohawk are violent by nature. And that is basically the complete opposite of what 
Quakers stand for. Ian, on the other hand, while he loves Rachel with a passion, knows that by loving her, he's endangering her life because Archbug is following him around, waiting for him to fall head over heels for someone, have a family so that he can literally just take it from Ian, which is the cruelest form of punishment. Rachel wouldn't hurt a fly, and here's Archbug looming like a dark storm cloud and she doesn't even know what's going on whenever they meet at the end of this episode it's just very unsettling and so poor denny he doesn't know what to do he can't rightfully tell rachel what is the right decision because he made a decision to be a fighting quaker he decided that he was going to support the Continental Army and damn the torpedoes and so he'd be a hypocrite if he sat there and told rachel Are you kidding me? No, you can't marry him. That's not the right thing to do. I don't care if you love him or not. All he can do is support her. When Rachel asks him to pray for her, Rachel says, well, have you no faith left in God? And he says, I have endless faith in God. In thee, not so much. (laughs) So he just knows that Rachel's going to do whatever the heck she wants to do, regardless of the consequences. It's just She's thinking about it very carefully because she knows what she's getting herself into if she makes this choice. And despite all of that, Ian and Rachel continue to fall for each other. And we get this very intense chemistry between them, this sexual tension that leads to this kiss. And Rachel slaps Ian because he's tempting her. He's the snake in the Garden of Eden. She wants him so badly and vice versa. But It's just not right for them. There's so many things that are conflicting with their deep, pure love for each other at this point. I love the line in their first scene together where Ian says, I'm not worried about whether you love me. I'm worried about whether you might die because of it. This isn't a game. And that's what he needs Rachel to understand. He's not going to point blank come out and say that he killed Mardina Bug and her husband is on a revenge mission. Okay. But he needs her to understand that there are life and death consequences to this decision potentially. And he's not taking that lightly. Like there are reasons that he is behaving the way that he is behaving. And, you know, Rachel tries to make a game of it. And she says, thee has cheek. I did not say I love thee. But it's very serious. And I... She feels that too, but I don't think that she wants to burden him with her indecision, if that makes sense. So when he leaves Rolo with her at the end of this episode, it's the right thing to do. Who wants to keep a dog cooped up on a ship for six weeks while they trek across the Atlantic Ocean and the Irish Sea to get to Scotland? But he's making Rachel a promise by leaving Rolo with her that he will return. He's not going to leave his dog And if his dog is with Rachel, that means he's coming back to Rachel. She feels a little bit better about him leaving, but it's still really hard because she doesn't want to be separated from him. He doesn't want to be separated from her, but it's him living up to a promise that he made to return to his mother. He has to uphold that promise. And Rachel realizes that. She knows that a man has nothing if he doesn't have his principles and This is Ian's way of holding on to his ideals and holding up his end of the bargain. She admires him for that, even though it hurts to be separated from him. But it also very neatly leads us into the next phase of the revolution because she says, when you come back, the army's moving south, you'll find me at Valley Forge, which is down towards Philadelphia, which will tie in very nicely with where this story is going. 
I will say that John and Izzy have a really good chemistry that like I am so pleased with because I did not have that sense of wowza with John and the actress that played Emily, which I really felt like I would. And I feel like that's part of the reason that I didn't latch on to Emily and Ian's story was because I didn't feel that passion there. But with John and Izzy, it's fantastic. There's this sexual tension between them. That kiss was freaking hot. Like the way they just really sat there like barely kissing and they almost kissed a second time. It was so good. The music here was so interesting. There's just a sense of foreboding here, like tense, mysterious, I don't know how to describe it. It just had a sense of urgency to it, but it was slow at the same time. I'm not really sure what caused that feeling. Something else that I noticed, and I first noticed it in this scene, was the use of the wind in this episode. So naturally, this episode was titled Turning Points, which I felt was very apropos for everything that is covered in this episode. And it's full of these turbulent emotions. And I feel like that is communicated very well visually with the use of the wind. We get wind fluttering the sides of the tent when Ian and Rachel are having their moment where they kiss and then they almost kiss again with this music underlaid. And then you get the wind bowing the treetops when Rachel and Denny are having their conversation on that log outside of camp. You get the wind flapping the flag in the British camp when Jamie goes to say his goodbyes to his cousin at the end. There's just all kinds of wind and breeze and things really signifying the turbulent waters of this episode. Like so much going on, so much unease, and it's really even communicated in the visual cues of this episode. Now I'm going to nerd out for just a moment because we're going to talk about two historical figures in this episode. Seeing historical figures in Outlander is one of the reasons I love this show. It's something that really drew me to it in the beginning, especially in season two when we're seeing King Louis and Bonnie Prince Charlie all of these people, and they keep it coming. You get these little historical figures dotted throughout the series. You get Flora McDonald in season six. You get Governor Tryon in season five. George Washington in season four. It goes on and on and on. And it's so cool. And this season has not disappointed. I have a feeling I'm only going to nerd out more the further we get into this season. But this episode, we got Daniel Morgan, who we saw a little bit in the previous episodes. But he really had like a role to play in this episode, which I thought he did fantastically. And he was portrayed by Barry O'Connor. And then we got Benedict Arnold portrayed by Rod Hallett. They both knocked it out of the frigging park. I don't know what I was expecting, but this was not it and in the best way possible. You know, it's easy to get disappointed with people's performances. You build things up in your head and you have this expectation of what it's going to be. And then it doesn't meet those expectations and it just falls flat. But nothing about this episode and nothing about these characters fell flat for me. Daniel Morgan, very interesting fellow. He came into the story in a most unusual way, like right at the end when Claire and Jamie come back from Ticonderoga and they meet up with the rest of the army. 
he kind of recruits Jamie. And that's really all we get. We didn't see much of Jamie and Claire in the last episode, 707. And then here we really start to understand Morgan's rifles played a huge part in the Battle of Saratoga and subsequent battles all across the Revolutionary War, but a really large part of the first Battle of Saratoga on Freeman's Farm and the Battle of Bemis Heights, which is the second Battle of Saratoga. So whenever you look at this as such a pivotal historical character paired with Benedict Arnold, who is arguably one of the most infamous people in the entire American Revolution, right? Even 200 years later, you really get a nice juxtaposition because these are two officers for the Continental Army that were very well known, very beloved by their men, had high regard and had excellent military minds. But Benedict Arnold went one way and Daniel Morgan went another. And Even to this day, I mean, they're relatively well-known. Daniel Morgan, I would say, is not as well-known as Benedict Arnold, but it's respect versus disrespect. Benedict Arnold is remembered, but not for the reasons that he wanted to be remembered. It just goes to show how you can have two really revered members of the army, and a couple of key decisions can totally change somebody's fate. We got both of these characters and they're relatable characters, especially Benedict Arnold, who I'll talk about in a second. Obviously, Daniel Morgan and the scene with him showing his scars on his back is meant to draw that parallel for when Jamie was doing the same while Dougal was raising money for the Jacobites. And any other time he's shown his back to people and there's been this gasp in the room. During this scene, because this is something that Morgan does regularly to like stir up resentment for the British Army and like this is what the British Army does. He gives this very stirring speech about how they don't like it when we fight back. A very good speech to give for people that are rising against the crown for their own independence. It creates this desire to stand up for what you believe in no matter what and fight back. It's kind of like reverse psychology in a way. And Jamie cannot take his eyes off Morgan. It's really him taking the measure of Morgan. Like, is he doing this honestly or is he doing this because he's got an end goal? He sees himself in Morgan a little bit. And that's what Claire looks at Jamie and she says, does he know? He says, I think he senses me a kindred spirit, but no, he doesn't know we're kindred of flesh as well. That scene goes a long way towards showing why Jamie and Morgan get along and Jamie defers to Morgan so easily later in the episode. But that scene with Morgan was also very interesting because it shows the predicament that Jamie is in with William. Like no matter these huge achievements that the Continental Army is accomplishing over the course of the war, like something as big as retaking Mount Defiance, he can't enjoy that because he knows there's a chance that his son could have been killed or taken prisoner as a result. Benedict Arnold, though, It was a very cool character to read from Diana's perspective because she always puts a twist on these historical figures and makes them real, gives life to people that we've only read about in history books, makes them relatable. And I think that is especially key when we're looking at Benedict Arnold, because like I said, he's arguably one of the most infamous people of the American Revolution. He's a traitor to America. He was the first one, the first traitor to America, that was Benedict Arnold. And it's like Claire says, 200 years from now, whenever you betray someone, you're called a Benedict Arnold. But 
understanding how he went from a loyal American that won all of these battles and had all these huge accomplishments. Benedict Arnold was highly successful in Canada during the French and Indian War and the campaigns for taking Ticonderoga from the British the first time. That's who he is. He's bold. He doesn't care. Like, he doesn't give a flying fuck what most people think, okay? He knows what he has to do to win, and he's going to do it, whether that's a reckless decision or not. And I think that's why Gates didn't like him, because he knew Benedict Arnold wasn't necessarily about calculated maneuvers. He was about doing what he had to do to win at all costs. Granted, there was a lot more to that relationship, more than I could ever have time to go into in one episode, but... The gist of it is, is that they did not get along. And that resentment that Arnold had towards Gates led him down a very dangerous path of looking for gratification in other directions. George Washington loved Benedict Arnold. Arnold was loved by his men, but when it came to the opinions of his superior officers, uh, not so much a lot of the times. For someone who needs other people's approval needs recognition for his accomplishments, when you're constantly being cock-blocked by everybody, it's really hard to not have resentment and to not start to look in other places for that recognition that you feel you deserve. I love how this plays into my favorite episode of Outlander, which is Dragonfly and Amber. Dragonfly and Amber had a conversation between Roger and Bree whenever they go to Fort William. That is extreme foreshadowing. First off, they talk about her dropping an ice cream cone off the ramparts at Fort Ticonderoga, and that is one of her earliest core memories for her. But also, she has this conversation where she says, the Revolutionary War is practically a religious text in Boston. And Roger says, with George Washington as the Messiah and Benedict Arnold as Judas. Brie looks at him and says, Benedict Arnold is a seriously misunderstood historical figure. (laughs) And then we, you know, five books later get to this stuff with Benedict Arnold actually being a person that Claire and Jamie have interaction with. And you understand, you begin to see how he potentially could have gone down the path that he did. He feels he's owed something for everything he's done for America and the Continental Army. And I can't blame him for that. And neither can Claire. When he asks her after he's been shot in the leg for the second time, am I wrong to begrudge this offense? Like, am I wrong to be resentful of Gates for doing this to me, for rewriting the story and bending the facts? I would be angry too. Would I be angry enough to turn my coat? I don't know. I mean, I can't really say. I mean, maybe if I'd put up with years and years and years of putting my life on the line and never getting any credit for all the actions that I've taken, the toll it's taken on my body and my personal health. Yeah, maybe I would be resentful enough to do that. You just never know. And so I feel like it's easy to judge Benedict Arnold for his actions. But when you look at what led to that decision, you have to kind of at least have some empathy towards the situation that he was in as well. 
So now Jamie and Claire are in a pickle. Up until this point, every historical pickle they found themselves in has been, well, we don't want that to happen, so how do we stop it from happening? We saw it in the Jacobite Rising. We saw it at the Battle of Alamance. And now we're in a situation where all Claire knows is Benedict Arnold turns his coat and the Americans win the war. So now they want something terrible that a relatively good person does. They need it to happen. This is almost as gut-wrenching as something terrible happening and not being able to stop it. They know what the implications are in the future, and they have to let him do this, even though it's going to mean bad things for him. I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, he went to England and he lived out the rest of his days in relative comfort after he turned his coat. It's interesting, the conundrum that Claire and Jamie are in for sure. But I will have to say that my favorite Benedict Arnold moment of the episode was the conversation where he comes before she knows who he is and wants to do a trade with her. They have this whole existential conversation about knowing one's limits. It really goes to show you that Benedict Arnold was this cerebral, affable guy. People liked him. That's what I think, especially the writers and Rod Hallett portraying Benedict Arnold, they had great conversation, him and Claire, and it really just blurred the lines between good and bad and black and white. You know, it, it was a lot of gray. So the conversation that he and Claire had goes something like this. She says, it does well to know one's limits. And he says, do you think so? Do you not think that the admission of such limits might, in fact, prevent one from accomplishing all that is possible because one assumes something is not possible? So do you think that accepting that you have limits keeps you from achieving your true potential because you're not consistently pushing yourself is what he's saying, which I had to write that one down to fully comprehend what he was saying because I was like, that was a lot of words in one very big long sentence. It's a fantastic question. Does it do well to know that there are some things that are beyond your control or is it better to never admit that there's something beyond your control and constantly be pushing the envelope. I can make a case for both. And it's a very good argument. I love how Jamie comes in and quotes the Robert Browning poem. I believe the poem's Andrea del Sarto, where he says, well, I've heard it said, a man's reach must exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? It's very appropriate and very thought provoking, this conversation. It's a scene out of the books. I loved it in the books. I loved it in the show. There were a lot of scenes from the books in this episode, and they all fit so seamlessly together with the adaptation of the show story that it was beautiful, guys. It was so beautiful. So this leads us to the big story for this episode. The character that this episode was about is Jamie, hands down. I did not have any hesitation about saying that Jamie was the one this episode was using to drive the plot forward. And a lot happened. For Jamie and Claire, I'm kind of going to like lump them together a little bit. But it all starts with the very first scene. Another scene pretty much straight out of the books where Claire is protecting Jamie's prone form against scavengers. This scene has a great mix of seriousness and humor. Claire is so pissed at Jamie. I can't blame her for being mad. First off, she doesn't have the full story. Second off, he's a rifleman and he's supposed to be away from the danger and suddenly she finds him injured 
on the battlefield where he and a few other men from Morgan's rifles have charged into the fray and it's nearly cut his hand into. That's not a place that you want to find your husband. That would be scary. And I'm glad that she basically reams him out. She calls him a vainglorious, pig-headed, grandstanding Scott. And he just looks at her and he's finding it hard not to laugh. And he goes, grandstanding. <laughs> like, oh, I see. I just saved an entire company of men, but I'm grandstanding. Okay, cool. <laughs> the scene in general was very lovely. One thing that I want to note is that this episode starts out with that painting of Willie being taken out of Jamie's sporin and thrown across the ground and Claire picks it up and gives it back to him. This is the very first scene, you know, making sure that William is with him. At the end of this episode, it ends with him meeting William face to face as a grown man. I liked that arc for Jamie over the course of this. It's very subtle. It's almost like a bit of foreshadowing if you want to look at it that way. It leads into this scene that Jamie and Claire have yet another scene straight from the books pretty much talking about a scene from the Bible where I think it's Abraham is arguing with God and like whittling him down. It's like, oh, will you destroy the city for 50 just men? But he knows that he won't find 50. And so he goes down and down and down, eventually gets to 10 men. Jamie looks at Claire. He knows his hand is really badly damaged. And he's like, well, will you have to take anything off? I'll allow it if you will. And she's like, oh, will you? Will you allow it? Oh, how generous of you. <laughs> And he tells her this story because he saved this entire company of men. That's 50 men in a company, him and a couple of other guys by charging and breaking the British line. And he's saying, do you think there's 10 good men in that company of 50 men or maybe five? And then he's kind of wobbly at this point, almost on the verge of unconsciousness from all that laudanum. And he goes, 10 good men would be worth a finger, Sassanac, or five or even one. Considering this is coming from a man who would not let her cut off his leg at the knee to save his own life, and now he's saying you can take my finger for the life of some random stranger I've never met, it would be worth it if he's a good man. That is a very marked change in that character that we're seeing from two seasons at this point. I just, I really loved it. Like, it's sweet. And, you know, Claire can't stay mad at Jamie forever, right? Because then he goes and does something like this, where like, yeah, I know this, I scared the hell out of you, but... I did this selflessly. And it was a little bit of a head fake because in the books, Jamie actually loses one of his fingers. I never really thought that that was something they were going to pursue just because it didn't logistically seem possible or probable for them to remove Sam Hewen's ring finger out of every shot he was going to be in for the rest of the show. But they found a way to put this scene in and allow him to still keep his finger. And I think it still worked out very well. And yeah, I appreciated the effort and the head fake because it kept you guessing right up until the end. Like even when I was watching this episode, I was counting his fingers when we got that first look at his hand after it was fixed. I was like, okay, does he have all five fingers? <laughs> it was also kind of weird because the way that his hand was being held, it looked really narrow. And so it's like, oh my God, they did take his finger. And then I'm like, no, 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 there's five. There's five fingers there. The next big scene is 
the big scene, which is the battle sequence and shooting William's hat off. There's a lot going on for Jamie in this scene because not only is he being shot at repeatedly as a rifleman, the riflemen were a key part of the American Revolution because this was one of the first wars that the British had ever really fought where it wasn't lines shooting at lines of soldiers. It was more of a guerrilla warfare type deal. So the riflemen were high value targets, if that makes sense, for the British Army. And so they're getting pelted with lead at this point. And then Benedict Arnold and Daniel Morgan are yelling at these riflemen to shoot Simon Fraser, who's Jamie's second cousin. Of course, Jamie is not going to shoot his cousin. I mean, this is somebody he's known since he was a very young boy. And he hasn't seen him in a long time. But still, I mean, childhood friend. You're not going to shoot your childhood friend. And so he takes aim and then jerks his gun just a little bit to the right. And the bullet goes wild and takes the hat off a soldier, which is William. In the books, Jamie didn't realize in the moment that it was William. He only realized afterward when he heard William mention it that some rebel horse son had shot the hat off of his head. But in the show, they made the adaptive choice for Jamie to realize in the moment that this was William. And I think it added so much when we move forward into the charge, the taking of the redoubt, because at that point, Jamie knows that William is there. And it adds so much tension, chaos, and confusion to everything, because as We're seeing Jamie climb the wall of the redoubt, which I think this whole sequence with the battle was done very well because honestly, when I was reading the book, and I know I've heard this from others, it was very confusing and very hard to picture what was actually happening and to see it on screen, to actually see the redoubt and see the charge, see them climbing over the walls, the grenades being thrown, all of that. It just made it so much easier to understand and put yourself there. And then whenever you add the fact that Jamie has seen his son, he knows he's there. And so now, even though he's trying to defend himself and still do his duty as a soldier, he's worried that he's going to see William. Like He's looking for William. He wants to protect William. And then he thinks that he sees William getting killed and he freezes. And he screams, William, and then he almost dies because of this distraction, you know? And then luckily, Ian comes in and saves the day. But it adds stakes that weren't there. Like, as if you need more stakes whenever you're in a battle. But this makes it so much worse because Jamie is not even looking out for himself. He's looking out for his son that is not even there. It's heart-wrenching just that moment whenever you think that William got stabbed, even though book readers know that didn't happen. But the audience in general is just like, oh, my God, please tell me Jamie didn't witness his son getting killed. That would just be awful. We see that over and over again over the course of this episode, just Jamie's concern for his son. Claire brings Jamie back to the tent. After that initial scene, they're talking about who won the battle. Claire tells Jamie, well, the British are claiming victory because the Americans left the field, but only because it got dark. 
in that they really suffered twice the casualties that we did. He says it's a sensible plan, but it scares the bejesus out of him hearing that there were double the casualties. And then Claire says, Fort Ticonderoga is a garrison and a fort. William could have very well stayed at Ticonderoga. Just because he was there doesn't mean he's here at Saratoga, which Jamie knows is true. So then fast forward a little bit and Morgan is telling his story from the letter General Gates sent him that says, Colonel John Brown retook Sugarloaf Hill, which is Mount Defiance now. And that's funny because they weren't very defiant when we took it back from them. In the process, they captured 12 British officers. Um, And again, Jamie's absolutely terrified because like, oh, shit, well... If William is there, then he could potentially be one of these 12 officers that was captured. So now what? And then he catches sight of him at Bemis Heights. Since William wasn't at the redoubt and the battle is over, Jamie can kind of assume that he's probably safe. And so knowing that the battle is over is somewhat of a relief at that point. But the surrender is not official, and he hasn't for sure seen his son in the flesh since he walked Simon Fraser's horse off the field of battle. There's no for certain here at all, and that's a, a very high source of tension for Jamie over the course of this episode. And one of the most touching moments for me over the course of 708 was the death of Simon, which kind of surprised me because when I was initially watching the season, I thought that Simon was good. Like the guy that plays Simon was good. Angus McFadden, I think is his name. But I wasn't as crazy about his performance as I was about Rod Hallett and Barry O'Connor's performances. There's just something about the setting, the music. Oh my God, the music with all the bagpipes. It's just like Scotland is what bonds these two men together. You know, these two cousins both longing for home. Ugh. That makes my heart just palpitate whenever I hear that music. It's so good, but so sad all at once. Sam Hewen, phenomenal, of course. I was actually really surprised that the scene where Jamie and Simon grip hands didn't somehow make it into the main title credits, which on further reflection probably has something to do with the fact that they were already showing Jamie and John with their hands, so they probably didn't want too much with hands because that would have just been too much similarity. This conversation that Simon and Jamie have, you know, talking about their childhood and Jamie says, I'm sorry it's come to this, so far away from kin and Scotland. Simon looks at him and says, but I have kin with me now, and so I am content to die amongst my comrades. It's so sad. I did a blog piece a few months back on Simon Fraser. He was married at the time that he passed, but he spent the majority, like years of his marriage away from his wife on campaign. It's rumored that he called for her right before he died. Obviously, she was back in Ireland, I think, at the time. It was just a really sad moment. Fraser was beloved by his men, and they were all very shaken by his loss. Like, it was said that once he left the field after being shot, the fight just kind of went out of his soldiers because he was managing to rally his forces back together and get them reorganized. And that's when Arnold and Morgan recognized that and said, yeah, he's got to go. It's just unfortunate, the nature of war, honestly, because a lot of good men die, but it is what it is, I suppose. But nonetheless, this death of Simon Fraser and having Jamie and Claire in the British camp gives us an excuse for a couple of flipping phenomenal scenes. 
two of my favorite scenes that kind of bleed into each other over the course of the last 15 minutes. The first is when Claire leaves the tent and she's standing in the British camp and, mind you, she sees the British flag flapping in the wind. And then you hear William say, Mistress Fraser. And he's genuinely pleased to see her. He says, glad to see you well. Despite how they left things the last time they saw each other, he's really glad to see her. William likes her. She had a very profound impact on him when he was young. And slowly but surely, she's taking on more of a maternal role for him. I mean, keep in mind that this is a young man who lost two mothers at a very young age. He's drawn to maternal figures. And Claire is that for him in a strange way. When she says, I'm sorry for your loss. He almost breaks down into tears, and I think she realizes just how fragile he is in that moment. He's had a really rough two weeks. He lost his best friend, and he lost General Fraser, who was almost like a paternal figure for him. That's rough. Like, rough with a capital R. And then he says, or did you mean the battle? Because he was like, thank you. Just... The idea that somebody cares with a young man that's gone through so much, you know, that must have been so overwhelming for him. And then he realizes, oh, did you mean the battle? And Claire feels for him in that moment because she sees that. And it's probably an emotion that she's seen in her own daughter, his sister, that overwhelming grief. She says to him, war is a terrible business, William, no matter who wins. That's the part no one tells you about. He nods and says, I'm beginning to see that. He's had to learn the hard way, which is so unfortunate, but also necessary. I thought that that scene was extremely touching, also puts him in a really vulnerable place for what comes next when Colonel Grant comes up and talks to William about where his hat is. Claire goes over to Jamie, who's just come out of the tent after General Fraser passed, and he's not even looking at her. He's looking in the tent, paying his respects. And she says, William's here. And his back kind of straightens and he looks over at his son standing there just talking to one of his commanding officers. William has that famous line, some rebel horse son shot it off my head. And Jamie marches over and says, I believe I owe you a hat, sir. This was acted out so fantastically by both Charles and Sam. You just can't not get chills when you watch it. There's this interesting sense of recognition for William. Like, I know this guy, but it's under this polite facade or courtly manners, as Claire calls it, and he accepts the hat. But also when you look at Sam's performance, he looks at the ground when he offers his hat to William. He says, I believe I owe you a hat. And then he pauses and he looks up and makes eye contact with his son and says, sir. On the level, speaking to his grown son as a man. And that's what Jamie needed in that moment. William recognizes this man as someone he knew when he was young. And that is there. And meeting him again as an adult, like this man who had such an impact on him as a child, is just kind of flummoxing to William. He doesn't really know what to do about it. And then before he can even like process it, Jamie's gone. When Claire finally gets to talk to Jamie about it and she's like, why did you do that? He has a really great line that he says, for the second time in his life, I've come within an inch of shooting my son. The first was the night of his birth. And I thought all at once, what if I didn't miss a third time? I thought I must at least try to speak with him once. 
as a man in case it was my only chance. When he says as a man, there is such a look of pride in his eyes. Like this is my son, a soldier, an officer, honorable, handsome, intelligent, and I got to talk to him. That makes me really emotional thinking about that moment and its implications for Jamie. Like this is a moment he never thought he would get. And after just losing his cousin, almost killing his son, like this battle was a huge moment for him. It suddenly made him realize, I don't want to wait. I don't want to put off for tomorrow what I can do today because if I put it off till tomorrow, it might be too late. And so he spoke with William and it was a phenomenal scene. And you know, William looks after Jamie. Whenever Colonel Grant and him walk over to Simon's tent and he goes to close the flap and he says, no, the donor of your hat says to leave it open. A very interesting gentleman, James Fraser. And William looks after Jamie, just kind of curious and interested. And he just goes, indeed. And that's kind of where it leaves it for the whole fucking mid-season finale. But God, guys, it was such a good scene. I could talk about it for hours and I'm not going to in the interest of time. But basically what this all amounts to is that part of the terms of surrender for the British is Jamie, Simon Fraser's kin, taking Simon's body home for burial, which is a very interesting twist because nobody really knows what happened to Simon Fraser's body. There's rumor that it's buried near the Great Redoubt at Saratoga, but there's no signage, like there's no proof that he's buried there. Diana used that gray to serve her own purposes and get Jamie and Claire back to Scotland in the fictional Outlander world. She likes to do that, and I think it's clever, and it's a good plot device. I mean, it's a good reason for Jamie and Claire and Ian to get back to Scotland. And honestly, despite all the amazing things that happened in this episode, this last scene between Jamie, Claire, and Ian is probably one of my favorites. And I know that's so weird to say, given all the momentous occasions that happened in 708. But there's just something about their dialogue. It's casual, familial, loving, very domestic. Ian coming in and and slumping down and saying, I miss my dog. You know, it's so relatable. I miss my dog. And then Claire says, I'm sure he's much happier with Rachel on dry land. And Jamie, not even looking up, like he's got his eyes covered. He goes, I'd sell my soul to be on dry land. (laughs) The writer of this episode, Luke Skelhaus, really did a fantastic job. I absolutely have no complaints. His episodes have been kind of hit or miss for me, but his past couple episodes have been really strong in my opinion. So yeah, this, this was the icing on the flipping cake. Of course, where there's usually icing or you normally get like a cherry on top or something. And for me, that cherry on top was the song. Gregor Lebroid, oh, holy smokes, with this song. And it's a Bear McCreary arrangement, of course, so you know it's going to be fabulous. But the selection of this song, the movement of the lyrics, I mean, you can't understand what it's saying, but it's so freaking beautiful and it just screams Scotland. When I found out what this song was about, I was just floored like it was so perfect and so basically what it was is about a native of scotland who after the jacobite rising of 45 left scotland and went to america 
where he ended up in North Carolina until the American Revolution, where he ended up being a loyalist fighting for the British. And after the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, he was basically hunted and rumor has it that he was murdered by the rebels. I don't think that any of that is proven, but nonetheless, he wrote this song and several other songs. And this song translates to, I'm weary of this exile. He's talking about how much he longs for Scotland. He's tired of being away from it. He wants to go home. Yeah, it's a guy that's from Scotland that moved to North Carolina and fought in the American Revolution. You can look at it as a parallel to Jamie, absolutely. But I think it's more important to see that as a parallel to Simon. He joined the British Army after the Jacobite Rising, then spent the rest of his life as a career soldier and died in service to the crown And really, in those final moments, he was just talking about how much he wanted to be with Ken and go back to Scotland, you know, and he's finally coming home. This song for me was so beautifully paired with the scene, the emotion on Sam's face, looking at what I'm only assuming is probably a green screen, just blows my mind, really. So yeah, this episode was fantastic on so many levels, guys. Honestly, I I can't even express how much I love this episode. But you know, we have eight left. So I can't wait to see what the rest of the season holds and can't wait to talk about it. Before we go, I want to make sure to mention my quote of the episode, which was the Benedict Arnold quote, actually, that I purposefully didn't mention in my episode, where he says, does a wise man know his limits? or a bold one, deny them. That's so thought-provoking. I love to think about that. Like I said, I can see both sides to that argument, so I'll leave you with it to ponder it. And then performance of the episode, I didn't really have one because I thought everybody was fantastic. So I'm calling this an ensemble performance, as most of my top episodes are. I feel like you can't have the best episode or one of the best episodes of the series if everybody is not firing on all cylinders. And I definitely felt like they were, especially the guest cast of all of these historical figures. So phenomenal. Having a good episode, going out with a bang for the mid-season finale was definitely the way to go. And I absolutely cannot wait for 7B. So I think that wraps up my analysis for this week. But as always, I like to hear what you guys thought. So without further ado, let's get into some listener comments. Patty Hacks LeCompte says, For me, this episode was one of the best. So many things from the book. I cried a couple of times. When Simon dies with Jamie by his side was very poignant. Everyone brought their A-game. But for me, the ending on the ship with that beautiful song, the way Sam and Katrina are so completely believable as a mature husband and wife, he waits to take her hand when they come up the steps and see Scotland. The look on Sam's face had a million emotions, and Kat is looking at him with such an expression of love. And Ian's face with a little excitement mixed with apprehension, all in the last few minutes. I was sobbing when those credits rolled. Absolutely. That was a very emotional scene for me. I think for everybody watching that, because again, with the it's unclear how much time is passing in this show, it's been a decade since they've been in Scotland. This is a day they never thought they'd see. And they're here. And it's happening. Regina Geyser says... Roger deciding to go back through the stones was truly a protective father move. He would risk anything to save his child, even if that meant risking traveling through the stones to do it. 
It's a testament of love, strength, and protectiveness for a father to risk his life for his child. Rachel and Ian, oh my gosh. The chemistry is real. That tension, the looks, the brush of the hands was palpable. It really jumped off the screen for me. So well done to both actors and their scenes together. I loved that Jamie got to meet William man-to-man and see what his son was like as a grown man, even if William doesn't know Jamie is his biological father. His looks of awe and pride for his son, even though they're on opposite sides, was adorable to see because no matter what, William is still his son and he loves his boy, even if that means he has to love him in the shadows and at a distance. Again, an overall great episode to me. And then the final comment of the day is from Casey Filson. She says, This one hits all the high points for me. Between the Jamie and Claire opening, which was fantabulous, to the highlights of Scottish culture, it was just wow. Sam and Kat have mastered unspoken Jamie and Claire conversations with their eyes when he's trying to stifle a scream when Claire's trying to bandage his hand. And she just gives him that it's your own stupid fault for not being where you're supposed to be. Claire and Denzel's conversation was everything I hoped it would be. Well played and super insightful. We finally got a romantic scene between Rachel and Ian, and it's a good one. Well done to both actors. It's just gut-wrenching watching Jamie realize he almost shoots his son in lieu of General Fraser. The talk between Jamie and Fraser was so sweet. The war was hard on families, but they were able to recall good memories together. And then Jamie talks to William, and wow, you can tell that conversation got William's wheels spinning. And then Jamie is requested to return the general's body to Scotland, and there's the ticket home. The ending couldn't have done better. Jamie's face when he sees home, the place where his family originated, where extended family is, where his history is. It really is something to have a connection with a place like that. I have to say, I was surprised at the lack of the Max storyline this episode. Maybe to keep everyone in suspense? I don't know. This episode ranks number two for me for 7A. My only complaint is that the Max storyline is too small and seemed chopped up weird. I definitely can't wait until we get 7B. So you mentioned a good point, and I realized I forgot to talk about this. Denny and Claire, they have a very sweet bond. You know, I was talking about how William gravitates towards Claire because she's a maternal figure. Claire and Denny have a different relationship because she's his mentor in a way. Like She's been there, done that. He utilizes her experience to try to make sense of his own emotions. And especially for a Quaker who can't abide all of this violence and bloodshed, this is a really hard experience for him to try to process. Not to mention the fact that he's a physician. And up until this point in his life, he's only lost four patients ever. And then within the span of a few hours, he's lost like 40. Claire's advice on this is everything he needs it to be. She's able to tell him, you just have to kind of roll with it. The only way that you're going to be able to accept the loss is to understand that without your help, the loss would be even greater. So it's very cool, I think, to be able to see Jamie and Claire in these experienced, mature roles where they're able to offer advice and support to these younger members of the family. That was really good. I can't believe I almost forgot to talk about that. So what's next for the Sassnack Files while we wait through Mini Droughtlander? On November 11th and 18th are back-to-back editions of Droughtlander Book Club, where I am going to be covering 
The Diamond Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. So if you've been reading along with the Celtic Brooch series and you would like to participate in the live events for book club, make sure to head over and join my private Facebook group, TSF Obsassinax. There you can participate in all of my live events and let me know what you think. If you are not able to join the live event, but you still want to check out the podcast, an abridged version will be posted within a couple weeks of the book clubs happening live. And then after that, we're taking a nice long hiatus for the holidays. And hopefully by the time the holidays are over, we will have a premiere date for 7B and maybe a trailer. And we can start down the promotion tour road for the podcast. So until then, I hope you guys stay safe out there. I'll chat at you in a couple weeks for book club. And until then, have a good one.